Morning. Morning. It's a blessing to be able to be here today. I didn't know on Tuesday if I'd be able to make it. My voice was giving out and the Lord in his providence has sustained me to be able to be here this morning. So appreciative for that. If you're not already there, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be reading verses 38 through 42 this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Let us pray this morning. Father, we come to you as a servant looking to the master's hand today, Lord, looking to be fed from your word. We ask that you would do and teach your people here. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to go forth, strengthen the hearts of your people, guide, correct, glorify Christ. Lord, we are not gathering here today merely to be with one another. Know that, though that is a great blessing. But Lord, we come to meet with thee, come to hear from your word, and we ask that you would speak. Apprehend the heart and the attention of every man with your, your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Westminster's Shorter Catechism opens up with the question, what is the chief end of man? It said, and the answer, as many of you know, is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. It was about a year ago, I think it was roughly a year ago, I was going over this with my wife and my kids, and my daughter, she, she answered and she gave it. I, I thought it was a really good answer. She proposed, if you would, a translation of this. And, she, and I asked her, so what's the chief end of man? And she responds, well, man's chief end is to glorify God and to love him forever. And I was like, well, it says to enjoy him, but I wasn't going to correct that. I think she was right. That's the, the heart and the, the spirit of what he's saying here. Man's chief end, you're created. If you're here today, you're created to glorify God. That's it. Nothing else to glorify him. And intimately connected to that is to enjoy him or to love him. You don't have the option, if you would, to try to glorify him apart from loving him. You can't glorify him apart from loving him. That's a prerequisite if you're going to do the first. Now, what connection does that have with Luke 10? My argument, if you would, my thesis here is that that's the primary argument he presents in these few verses this morning. If you would, Luke seeks to answer the very second half of this answer. What is your primary duty, Christian? What are you made to do? 
What, what is the preeminent thing that should rule every day over your life? Is to love Him. That's your duty. That reigns over every day. What you do, decisions you make, that reigns preeminent. And that's exactly what I believe Luke argues for here in Luke 10, 38 through 42. Just a couple things before we get into our passage this morning about Luke so that we have a good context as we come in. Luke did not seek to write his gospel account in a strict chronological manner, but he wrote often even in thematic, a thematic manner. So he's going, yes, he is going, if you would, from the birth of John the Baptist all the way to Christ's ascension, but along the way he's not necessarily trying to give a strict chronological account. He goes in themes and illustrates truth and themes all throughout. So if you're looking in Luke 10, 38 this morning, you're looking for what was this connected to the things before. It's not of a strict chronological manner. It's of the theme. Now, what does he address right before he comes to Martha and Mary? He does that of the Good Samaritan. If you would, you could break it down like this. He illustrates what is man's chief duty to his fellow man and then he follows up with an illustration. Well, what is man's chief duty to his God? You see that this morning. Secondly, Luke illustrates truth often through comparisons. Just consider a few examples. Earlier in the book of Luke, Zechariah's doubt is displayed over against Mary's faith. The birth and ministry of John the Baptist is paralleled with that of our Lord. He puts these examples one by another. Acts 17, one that's probably most notable, is that the account of the Thessalonica church and the Berean church, he puts these two illustrations, these two, uh, tr- these two accounts one by another, and it says they were the more noble. He illustrates a truth there because of their attention to the word of God through comparison. And then he just done this with the good Samaritan with Christ. He puts the example of the Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan, shows the two that were wrong, and then puts it over against that which was correct. What is a neighbor to do? How is a neighbor to live to his fellow man? And such will be the manner in which we approach our passage this morning. Luke, who alone records the account before us, puts before us the account of two faithful followers of Christ, both who have believed themselves to attend to the most pressing duty of the moment. Yet one is found to be devoted, the other is distracted. One is commended, the other is corrected. One is defended and the other is redirected. So we're going to approach our passage, if you would, this morning under three main headings. First, that in verse 38 of the context for this comparison that Luke gives us, the comparison itself between Mary and Martha in verses 39 through 40, and then Christ's conclusive clarity, verses 41 through 42, on this comparison, which which is right, if you would. First, as we come here to verse 38, let us, I'm going to address a few of the questions that often comes up when this verse in this context. First, there's an apparent lack of detail. It seems that when you're reading this, Luke seems to give us a context that leaves us somewhat with more questions than answers. He tells us they're traveling along yet not where to. He tells us they entered a village and not what the name of the village is. And there's several um, supposed answers that have been given for this. Uh, Commentators have suggested answers such as Gil seems to think as far as where they were going that they had just left Jerusalem and were traveling about in Judea. Benson commentary seems to think likely they were heading to Jerusalem at the Feast of the Dedication. 
And there's many thoughts as regard why did Luke not name Bethany. We know that Luke knows of Bethany. He speaks of it later in chapters 19 on the triumphal entry. And he also speaks about it with the ascension when Christ ascended. So we know that Luke knows of Bethany, but he doesn't mention it here. And there's several, several different, I'm not going to get into all the different supposed reasons as to why, but I want to get to the vital point. What is the intended purpose for why, the way he's giving us the context? His intended purpose is this. Luke is more interested in what happened at the places than the details of the places themselves. Hence, he doesn't mention the other villages as well. Luke 9.52, he tells us there's a village of Samaritans and doesn't tell us the name of the village. He tells us that Christ sent his followers out in Luke 10.1 all throughout the region to many places, and he doesn't give the name of the places. He's not interested in the, necessarily the details as much as what happened in each of these places. So the vital point Luke wants us to see is that this comes in the context of Christ's latter half of his ministry after he has set his face to Jerusalem. So if you go back in Luke 9.51, it says that Christ has set his face to go to Jerusalem. If you want to, you can look with me here this morning at that. It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. It's like, if you would, he breaks down Christ's ministry under two headings. It's beginnings in Galilee, chapters 4 through 9. And then he shifts here as giving an account of as Christ is going to Jerusalem. So he wants you to see this, if you would, this morning. He's on the road to do the greatest good for a man's soul. And along the way, he is serving and ministering to man. And not among the least of those services is that which our Lord does here at Bethany. It was here that our Lord often come to retire from his labors. We read in John chapter 12 where he sits at the table with Martha and Mary and supped with them. It was here that Christ had some of his beloved ones dwelt. When we read in John 11, there's a very close acquaintance we can tell between Jesus and this family. Several times in chapter 11, John there is references to his love to them individually. We see here Christ weeping for their sorrows as Lazarus died. There was a special place in the heart of our Lord for this little family and this little village that would often, you could even say, falls out of the sight of man. It's two miles on the side of, two miles roughly from Jerusalem. Probably was out of the vision and the thought of man, but it wasn't out of the eye or the, the vision of our Lord. Here was some of his beloved ones that he treasured. That he would later go and he'd bleed for. Secondly, look at us with the second half of this context this morning. Martha welcomes him into her home. It says, verse 38, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Several things to take note of. Just because it says that she welcomed him, it should not be interpreted that he alone was brought into her home. When we read in John 12, it says that they made him a supper, but we know the other disciples were present. Likely it was the same here. So what Luke is attempting to do, it's not that he is saying that only Christ came into the home. He's saying he was the center, if you would, of attention in Martha's mind. She welcomes him. He is in her eye and in her heart. 
She opens her doors up to Christ. And look at what this implies. This means that Martha willingly welcomed Christ and his 12 disciples into the home. And it was likely, secondly, it was likely spontaneous. There's nothing that I, I can see in the text that would indicate that it was prepared. It was as if she sees Christ out in the village and she says, come, come in. She opens the door to her home, to her beloved Savior, him and all 12 of his disciples. Now, I don't know about you all, but if I, w- I walked up to my, my wife tomorrow and said, sweetie, I got 12 friends coming over, I'd probably be sleeping on the couch for the next month. <laughs> but look at the heart of Martha. She loves him. She'll sacrifice whatever it takes. She welcomes him welcomes him into her home. This is the very heart of Martha we see here coming through the text. Also from the Greek, the Greek word hupod ekomai, which means to entertain hospitably. We can tell that she invites them over not only to have Christ and his disciples for fellowship, but with a view to serving him. She's brought him in to serve him. This is her delight. This is her great joy, if you would. And then not to mention, we know from John 11, which likely happened just after this account, we learned that this all happened at a point in Christ's ministry when it became even risky to entertain him. The disciples in John 11 a point out to Christ the danger, point out to Christ the danger of Christ returning so close to Jerusalem to raise Lazarus. And Thomas even anticipates the death for himself and the disciples in verse 16 of that same chapter. There was a great cost in her opening the door here. You see what this is all pointing to? This point that shows the obvious sacrificial heart of Martha to her Lord. To attend to him and his 12 disciples at a moment's notice and even bear the reproach for having his company are but little cost to Martha. Christ had her heart and an open door to her home. It is essential we see this before we come to the comparison that Luke gives us. Because everything we are about to observe from Martha's distraction to Christ's soon coming correction must be considered in light of Martha's relationship to Christ and Christ's heart for this little family in Bethany. This is a true, devoted follower of Christ. And that, in this correction, everything we're going to observe is in light of that this morning. Secondly, now, if you would, let us look at the comparison itself. First, observe that of Mary's devotion. Verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Notice where we find Mary in the scene. She's seated at Christ's feet. This is the proper place for a disciple to be found. It's here that Paul in Acts states that he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. He's saying I was tutored or I was discipled by Gamaliel. I was at his feet under his teaching. I think it's in Acts chapter 22. It is here that the demoniac was found in Luke 8.35 after being set free from the multitude of demons. He comes to the very feet of Christ. This was common in this day that pupils would be taught sitting at the feet of their teacher. 
And as it relates to the Lord, we can suggest it implies two things in Scripture. One, it implies the submission to Christ and His teaching. His word is bearing on their life and action. They are not as the lawyer in the previous passage who's seeking to justify themselves or as it were to stand over Christ's teaching. They're underneath Christ and His teaching. They're there at His feet. He has His rule over their life. When He speaks His word, they hearken and they hear. Secondly, it applies a worshipful attention to Christ and His teaching. Every time we find someone at Christ's feet, it is as if everything else fades into the backdrop and He becomes the center of attention. Consider how often in Scripture we find Mary here. In sorrow over her brother's death in John 11, Mary flees to the feet of Christ. In sacrificial devotion, we find her here in John 12. It's almost like this is the knee-jerk reaction, if you would, of Mary. She sees Christ and she flees to his feet. If he's teaching, she's listening. He has his rule over her. And And he's in the center of her attention. Everything else is just fading away. Christ is here and he's speaking. Notice what Mary is doing at the feet of her Lord. It says here at the end of verse 39 that she was listening to his word. This is the delight of the disciple's soul. To hear Christ speak captures the heart of true disciples. It is his word that is sweeter than the honeycomb. It is in his word that he reveals himself who is the believer's exceeding great reward. It is in his word that the true believer longs after and desires. And every true believer, as as Mary treasures the word of God, is a necessary fruit of salvation. It should be bearing in every believer. And I want to ask something on this point. Why is it that the word of God is so often neglected in personal Christian life? If it's the delight to come and to hear Christ in his word, why is it it's so neglected? Is not the question to ask that maybe, God forbid it be so with anyone here, we're not his disciples. Rather, we're his enemies and his friends. Pray it not be so. Not only is it the delight of the true disciple, it is also needed nourishment to the soul. The true disciple not only longs and desires the word, but is in need of it. They cannot continue without it. It is in his word that it is spirit and life. It is his word that is the means of their sanctification. John 17. It is in his word the disciple is warned and is rewarded in the keeping of his word. And it is in continuing in his word that true discipleship is tested. Think of what Christ says in John 8, 31. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Consider John 6. Many turned away from Christ, not being able to receive his word. And yet Peter, as a true disciple, speaks what ought to be said of us all. Where else do we go, Lord? Thou hast the words to eternal life. This is a needed nourishment to the soul of a believer. So two things we should observe when we read of Mary's devotion. One is Mary's love to Christ shown through her worshipful attention of him and her prioritizing of her own soul's needs above all other things. 
She prioritizes the need of her heart and soul in coming and hearing the teaching, the word of Christ. This is above all. This is preeminent. This reigns over all other things. Notice with me now as well as we go to chapter, the second part of this comparison, verse 40, Martha's distraction. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And let us consider just a few points here. First, let us take note of the appearance of the duty she was distracted with. It was seemingly understandable. It was Martha's responsibility to see that her guests were attended to. She's opened the door. Now is it not her responsibility to attend to them, to see they're attended to? And the duty itself was immense. Everyone included, not including if, you, if Lazarus was there. The text doesn't tell us, but we could presume that possibly he was. There was at least 15 people that needed to be attended to. 15 people. That's, not, that's no small number. That's not five or ten. That's going to call for attention. That's going to draw you away. It's going to distract you naturally. And it was seemingly justifiable. It was for Christ and his disciples. It appears virtu- virtuous, even sacrificial, if you would. Ought this not to be what a disciple does? Serving Christ? We've been saved to serve him, haven't we? She has the special opportunity to attend to these temporal basic needs of her Lord and his disciples. It's justifiable. Likely Martha's motives in her concern for the preparations flowed from her sacrificial heart of service to her Lord. Because this comes in the context of her freely opening the door and welcoming, welcoming him in. The problem doesn't lie in the duty itself. It's not where the issue is. Here's where the problem is. The problem lies in who she was distracted from. Though Martha has eagerly invited her Lord into her home, she has become more distracted in serving him than being with him. She's more attentive to what she can do for him than to hear from him. You see how subtle that is? If with Mary we find the undivided, worshipful attention on Christ and Mary prioritizing her own soul's needs above all things, with Martha we find distraction with doing and serving Christ and prioritizing the temporal needs of others above her own soul's needs. We have the precise opposite with that of Martha. And in most instances, her service is rather commendable. Our Lord doesn't rebuke her in John chapter 12. He doesn't correct her. It's commendable. I want to go on a practical point here, if you would. This is the very, if you, this is the great caution for a serious Christian. Someone who's serious about glorifying God. They take, the, they take to heart that first half of the chief end of man. They will, they'll die for him. They'll serve him. They'll pour their life out for him. But listen, it it has been said, and this is so, so true here. It is good things that are often the enemy of the Christian soul. It is things that are justifiable. It is understandable. It, it, It makes sense to be pulled away from. Let me give you a few examples I was thinking of as I was going over this text. You could be a sacrificial, loving husband or wife. You're called to do that. You better do it. 
scriptures command you to. Be a faithful worker. You're called to that. You ought to serve him there. Being a faithful parent unto the Lord. It's your duty. Here's one I thought of coming out of Revelation 2, reproving false doctrines, standing against error. And in this day, that is so very, very needed. But any one of these things and many more, that, that's a, but a sample, can usurp the place of him. Primary duty that I have is not to serve my wife and children. It's not. It is to be with my Lord. My wife and my children don't need all that I can give them. What they need is more of Christ. They need more of Him in me as I serve them. It is me being with Him that I have the fruits and the strength to do those things. It is communion with Him that's the fountainhead of all other service. And if you cut that off, you're not going to be able to do those things. You don't have that option of being distracted with other lesser goods. There is, a pri- there is a primary duty that God puts on your life if you're in Him here today, and it is to be with Him. The heeding of Him and His Word, treasuring every syllable that comes off of His tongue in His Scriptures. That's your duty. Let us now take note of the fruit of Martha's distraction. Her distraction from Christ first leads her to accusing him. Notice she says, let us read here the rest of verse 40. And she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Notice first, she says, do you not care? She accuses her Lord. He who's going to bleed on her behalf of lack of care. Her distraction has brought her even against Christ, the one whom she invited in to serve. She's became at odds with her Lord. She accuses him, do you not care? And such is the case with disciples when they lose sight of Christ. Consider the disciples as they were in the midst of the storm in Mark 4, 38. The waves are crashing around and it can draw the attention away, right? And what do they say? Do you not care that we perish? Lord, don't you care? Don't you see all these things? Aren't your, isn't your eye upon me now? And when we lose him out of our sight, we likewise as they will accuse the same way, whether in our hearts or on our tongues. Secondly, her distraction from Christ has led her to be at odds with her sister and Christ's dear follower. Notice she says here, My sister has left me. There's clear frustration with her sister. Why is she just sitting there hearing the words of Christ? Obviously, I need help. Shouldn't she be up here helping me? That's the virtuous thing to do. Serve him. That's what should be preeminent, right? She's frustrated with her sister's piety. It's a very, she adopts, as it were, the very language that Judas and the other disciples adopted in John 12 when there's Mary at the feet of Christ, worshiping him. And they come against her. Well, shouldn't shouldn't this ointment be sold elsewhere? She comes, as it were, with the 
Her distraction has led her into the same camp with them. She's now came against Christ, Christ's dear follower. Not only that, this labor, if you read in John 12, the labored Martha normally carries out alone and likely with delight has now become a burden to her. Normally, she doesn't say a word in John 12. It says Martha was serving. She probably has 15 people there as well. Not a peep. What's the problem? She's lost sight of him. This service that would be a delight, it's a joy, it's now nothing more than a burden. I need help, Lord. Someone else has got to help me attend to all these things. For in all these fruits, if you would, they funnel down into one fruit. And Martha, when she has become distracted from Christ, she's become all inward focused. It's all upon herself. It came all about her, if you would. It was Christ who didn't care for her. And Mary who had abandoned her in this labor that had overwhelmed her. It's all about herself. She's no longer looking away from self to Christ. It's all about me. There was an old uh, quote, probably won't quote it exact, but it says, if you look inward, you'll be depressed. If you look outward, you'll be distracted, I believe. And if you look upward, you'll be delighted. Such, a, such applies here. She's become distracted from Christ. And she's now inward focused. She's looking in. Look at me, my pitiful state. Now, after we've considered that, if you would, let us look now at Christ's conclusive clarity. Our third heading, verses 41 through 42. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. First, I want us to notice here, Christ shows his care for Martha. The very thing that she's accused him of, it's like he steps back and now he's going to affirm, yeah, I do care, Martha. You are in my eyesight. I haven't, I haven't missed what you're doing here. And he does this, we see, in two ways. One, he calls her by her name twice. I cannot recall anywhere in Scripture where the name of an individual disciple is addressed twice. And when you, when you repetition often implies emphasis. He's wanting her to see, Martha, Martha, you're in my eyes. You're under my care. I haven't lost sight of you, Martha. Secondly, he addresses her internal anxieties rather than her external frustration against him. Notice he says, you are worried. He comes as it were, you know, in Isaiah 9, it says he's the everlasting father. Well, you see something of his paternal rule in his kingdom here. He comes as a father to a child, addressing the inward problems that's manifested now outwardly. She's frustrated against him, but he patiently comes back. And what does he say? You're worried about all these things, Martha. You're bothered about so many things. This comes before he ever corrects her. Listen, Christ knows how to deal individually with each of his dear children. He knew the need and the times in which Peter needed to be strongly and firmly rebuked. He knew when to give that correction. And he also knew here that Martha is serving him. 
delighting. She's taken him in. She's opened up her home. Her heart is towards him. But yet, he comes gently. He doesn't come and rebuke her harshly. And all my prayer this morning has been this. This word, if anyone here would be found distracted from him, it's a serious disciple. They've received this in the same manner. This isn't the whip. This is a gentle reproof. This is the heart of Christ towards his dear people, those whom he would bleed and die for. So now after he goes to, shows his care for Martha, now he begins to deliver the correction, the corrective clarity to Martha. Verse 42, but only one thing is necessary for Martha has chosen the good part. Notice what he says here. It's almost as if he says, Martha, you're bothered about all these things, but there's really only one thing. He lessens the burden for his child. He says, you're burdened with all these things. You think that that takes preeminence in serving me, being with me. I'm not concerned as much about those things. He says, I want you to attend to me. He simplifies it down for his dear daughter. Simplifies it down. But notice here the great emphasis he puts upon this one thing. This one thing, this one thing. And if we were to define that this morning, what this one thing is is simply what has often been alluded to in the Old Testament. It's Christ, or God is his people's portion and great reward. When you read in Psalm 73, Asaph says, Thou art my portion. Psalm 16, David says, You are my inheritance. It's being with him. Loving him. That was the good part Mary chose and reigned preeminent. It was that second half of man's chief end. She attends to her chief duty, loving Christ. That's what she's chosen. That is the good part. But notice how he describes it. One, he describes it as necessary. This, this word, priya, is often used to describe physical needs. Every other passage you find it in the Bible is to attend to the material, physical needs of a man. So what's he saying here? This one thing is necessary. As clothing, as food is to your body, you being with me, attending to my word, the loving of me, is as vital to your soul, even more so. This is the illustration of what is said elsewhere when he says, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word out of the mouth of God. The treasuring of him, the delighting in him, loving him. It's necessary. If you would, turn with me real quick. I want to bring a little emphasis to this as well outside of this text. If you would, turn with me to John 15. I want to read just one verse in this passage. Notice what he says here in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather him and cast him into the fire and they are burned. This word abide is meaning communion here with Christ. So what's he saying 
You abide in me because those who will not abide in me are not truly mine. This is how necessary this is. It's hell. It's hell. You're either communing with him, delighting in him, loving him, as Martha normally did, and Mary was here. Or if that's never been a reality, you're not his. This is the fruit of salvation. This is essential. You don't have that option. If it's, not, if it's not present, you're not His. One of the first fruits of a regenerate soul is to love Christ. The question goes like this. It's Christ or it's hell. It's to love Him. It's to take Him at His feet. To delight in Him. It's your soul's chief joy, if you would. The only other option is you're His enemy. You're His friend or His enemy. How necessary and serious this is. He gives great emphasis on what he's saying here. Notice, secondly, he doesn't only describe it as necessary, he describes it as good. Not as compared to bad. It's not that what Martha was doing was wrong. We, we addressed that earlier. It's not that our Lord says the labors of Martha were wrong in themselves. Rather, our Lord seeks to show the surpassing good of being with him. There's no comparison. It, it doesn't compare with anything else. To be with him is the great end in good. There is no other comparison. It is for this end Christ died. He says, I have came that they may know thee, the one and only true God. He shed his blood so you could be brought in communion with him. This, if you would, is the crowning jewel of heaven. Heaven is sweet because Christ is there. Heaven will be wonderful because it'll be with him. You know, there was a preacher who said this once, and I agree with him. Is You'd get wore out on streets of gold after a while. You'd get really tired of it. Gates of pearl, they all begin to lose their splendor. Such is never the case with Christ. John 17, he says, that they may behold my glory. It's one of the very verses that were alluded to in that shorter catechism question. They may behold my glory. It is good with no comparison. Even lesser goods fall into the backdrop compared to being with him. Finally, he secures this good and necessary part with a promise. Notice here at the very end in Luke, turn back with me if you would to Luke chapter 10. Which shall not be taken away from her. He responds to Martha's demand for Christ with a secured promise. He says, not only am I not going to tell her to get up and help you, I'm going to promise it's not going to be taken from her. I'm going to secure this place of her being with me. Brothers and sisters, it's not only promised to Mary. It is here for every dear child of God. It is the eternal life you taste of now on the way to its fullest manifestation there in glory. That is a promise to you. 
There's nothing that takes you from the love of Christ. Nothing separates you from Him. The only thing that's ever caused us to be, if you would, separated from this enjoying Him has often been ourselves. And it is absolute, it'll never be taken away. Even ourselves can't get in the way of Christ's constancy and love to us. He'll still woo us back as he did with Martha. It's a surety. This is a secure to every single believer here today. This is yours. Take it with you. This next week, you're promised that you can be with him. He's given you the earnest of his spirit from now till glory. He's not left you alone. You have communion with him through his spirit in his word and the means of grace. It's promised to you here this morning. I want to conclude just with a couple basic points and I'll be finished. First, we've seen and handled that the Christian's chief duty is to be with Christ, but now how do you maintain a Mary-like devotion without Martha-like distractions. I'm just going to read a couple points, just a couple thoughts that I had on this. First, it begins having a right view of that which Christ desires most from us. If we have a misinterpretation of His desires to us, what He desires and commands and delights in us to attend to, we're going to forget this vital point. It must ever be in our eyes That which Christ commands of us the most is to love and to be with him in the attending to his word. Why do you think in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that he says with the great commandment, he says put it on your doorposts, put it before your eyes. Be ever reminded of that. Don't forget that. That is your great commandment. He does it with no other commandment in scriptures. Love him. Enjoy him if you would. Put it before your eyes. Remember it always. And don't forget. Secondly, it must be chosen, as was the case with Mary. It must be preferred. Notice it says she chose this good part. There was an intentionality about it. She has a heart that prefers it, And she has a will that is intent upon attending to it. This must be intentionally prioritized and guarded and attended to as believers. Nothing can interfere with this. This is to be set apart, attending to him, being with him, now till glory. I want to read something real quick as a comment. So I really enjoy George Mueller. He's probably one of my favorites that I've read. I want to read something that came out of his autobiography real quick on this very point. May 7th, the primary business I must attend to every day is fellowship with the Lord. The first concern is not how much I might serve the Lord, but how my inner man might be nourished. I may share the truth with unconverted. I may try to encourage believers, and I may relieve the distressed, or I may in other ways seek to behave as a child of God. 
yet not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day may result in this work being done in a wrong spirit. The most important thing I had to do was to read the word of God and to meditate on it. And thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, and instructed. He's right. You see that? He is an intentionality. That's my, and if anything, if there's anything that comes out from here, I'll pray there would be a revived intention about attending to Christ and His Word and the loving of Him. Whatever you're doing, the most important thing you have to do next week is to be with Jesus. That's your most vital duty. Your labors will flow out from that. It's not that you neglect the lesser goods, that they flow from that communion with Him. He gives the strength to perform that which He commands. And you will not have the strength unless you're with Him. The second table of the law can't usurp the first. And I want to make one last final point. Is anyone here today that may be outside of Christ? Maybe what I've said here, you, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being at the feet of Jesus, communing, loving, adoring Him. And this, this is foreign to you. You don't understand this. And really, quite honestly, you may not even care. Let me say something. If you're outside of Christ to hear it today, Psalm, in Psalm 16, there's a, there's a description of your state. It says, those who follow false gods will increase in sorrows. You seek to make a God out of broken cisterns, and yet they're broken, and you can't fill them. You try to make them be your God and satisfy your souls, and in doing so, you commit idolatry. The God of the universe has created you by himself, for himself, and for his glory. And until, as Augustine said, until you find rest in him, you will be a restless soul. I plead with you, look to this Jesus today, I preach. Look to this Jesus and delight in Him. Find joy in Him because you won't find it anywhere else. You're going to be left high and dry looking in this dead society, in this godless culture. Every idol that's presented here will never bring you what you're seeking after. It's only going to bring you a taste of hell on the way to hell. And I pray heed this this morning. This is a sufficient Savior I preach to you. He's offered Himself freely. And he died for everyone that will come to him. He paid the full debt and the price of your great wickedness on the cross if you will take him by faith this way. Let us conclude in prayer if you will. Father, I... I've utterly failed to do this text the justice deserves and Lord to present it as well as it ought to be presented but Lord I pray you take something and take it to the very heart of everyone present here. Oh Father as the hymn says over our being hold absolute sway 
God, ever bring us and draw us with the bands of love after thee. When our hearts grow cold, O Lord, forgive us and have mercy. Guide us afresh into your holy hill. Strengthen us, O God. May it be said of us, O Lord, and would you cause us to say that which the psalmist says, as the deer pants for the water, so pants my soul after thee. Cause us to long and to thirst for thee, O God. And Lord, in so doing and in all things, bring glory to yourself in Jesus' name.